News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we were just talking to Gordon McDonald about our behavior over the Christmas holidays and hoping that here in BC anyway, that we restrained enough, that we refrained from socializing enough to not have the numbers go crazy in the next couple of weeks. I mean, knock wood, right? So far, so okay from what we've seen in the numbers. But we do know that there are plenty of politicians that left the country for the holidays and plenty of pictures of public figures breaking the rules, celebrating as well. But for the average Canadian then, what did the holiday look like? Well, we're joined now by Ipsos Public Affairs CEO Daryl Berger for more on that. Hi, Daryl. Morning, Simi. You guys ask all the questions, don't you? You just—is there anything that you don't ask the questions about? Uh, pretty much everything. Yeah, as, as I like to say to people, I ruin every cocktail party. <laughs> every time I go anywhere, somebody says, "You know, I think what people are really thinking." No, no, you, you don't have to think. Yeah. I'll tell you exactly. You, you're the most popular person at a cocktail party. Well, they kick me out immediately. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this time you were asking about what people did over the holidays, and what did you find out? Half of us were not behaving very nicely. Ooh. 48% of us said that uh, we gathered with people outside of our homes. Um, and in fact, even worse than that, 61% of that half, so um, of the 48%, said that they actually gathered with people indoors uh, without masks. Ooh, okay. That's a lot of people. Did they reduce those numbers at all? And like, did they do it once? Do we know how many times they did this? Well, if you were a younger person, you did it a lot. In fact, uh, uh, probably twice the rate of what the uh, the average person who exhibited those behaviors I just talked about mm-hmm. did. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, I would say, coloring outside the lines through the course of the uh, through the uh, the course of the holidays. Okay, so is this is like in spite of the fact, I guess, Daryl, with all the messages out there, people still went ahead and did this. Well, and, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is people did say that they actually modified what they were doing. So uh, it was down probably from what they were doing the last time. That's what they told us in the polling we did for Global uh, previously, that they were going to change things. But the, the thing that really jumps out of the numbers for me is the 85% of people who, uh, among that 48%, said that they gather with people from outside their homes that don't think that that's going to ha- help to spread the disease. Wait a minute. So they broke the rules. They gathered when they weren't supposed to, but they feel they're the exception that the the virus is somehow not going to spread because of them. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Boy, I just don't know what to say to that though, Daryl, because everybody thinks they're the exception to the rule. Yeah, and and that's what uh, that that's what you see continually through these through these data that uh, you know that this is a disease that's out there. It's not in my home because you know people may know uh, individuals who've been been infected, but uh, you know in a, in a in a population of 38 million, the number of people who've actually been infected is still reasonably small, and particularly people who've been infected in a, in the most grievous way where they passed away as a result of uh, of, of COVID. It's it's not that large a number. And when you consider the overall population. So people don't feel that it's necessarily going to affect them, uh, particularly in the right. worst way. So they, they, they're, they're still somewhat seeing this disease as being something that's out there rather than something that's part of their specific life. Hmm. So did they travel out of the province? Did they stay in their communities? Okay, so here, here we, we broke it down in a couple of different ways. So we asked people... Um, did you travel outside of the province? 2% said they did. Did you go somewhere outside of the country? Another 2% said that they did. And 3% said they went to some sort of a, a, a cottage or some other uh, or cabin, as you would say, if you're in Western Canada. So that's, you know, roughly about 7%. So well, why don't we just one in 10? Uh, but the interesting thing about that is we asked people, uh, did they did they try to hide the fact that they did it, that they did that? Uh, about 10% of the people who did actually travel said that they tried to hide it. Ah, so they knew they were doing something they weren't supposed to. Right. And then they tried to hide it. So kind of like the politicians. And although I have to admit, that's a very low number, though, Daryl. Like, I think sometimes we have the impression that there's a ton of people traveling and breaking the rules. But from that polling that you just did, it sounds still like a pretty low number. Uh, 380,000, right? I mean, if the Canadian population is 38 million and, uh, you know, it's uh, 1%, it's not an insignificant number. 
All right. I guess people still, with all the polling that you've done though, Daryl, does this surprise you? Like, do you think, oh, wow, people still aren't getting the message or do you think they're just tired? Uh, What it did was surprise me in the following sense. I think our anticipation based on the previous polling of what people said that they were going to do was not how they they actually acted. So we saw that uh, in, in polling that you and I actually talked about on the air. Yeah. A vast majority of Canadians said they were going to modify their, uh, their holiday activities this year. But people maybe cutting down the number of places that they were going to visit didn't mean that they were going to completely eliminate it from their lives. So they had a bit of a different definition uh, in how they were answering those questions than we were interpreting them. Oh, that's interesting. All right. So they right. said one thing and they kind of did another well, they had a different version of what modifying their behavior meant. <laughs> we thought it meant following the public health rules. Well, they thought that um, if, if they were in a situation in which they interacted with other people in a way that they felt didn't potentially spread the disease, whether or not it contradicted the health rules right. or not, it was how they interpreted it. That was the interesting point. That is so interesting. Daryl, thank you. Always a pleasure, Simi. Thank you. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. So we may have said we weren't going to, you know, really break the rules over Christmas so that we were going to change our behavior. We did, just not completely, it sounds like, to conform to the health guidance out there. A group called the Proud Boys were a pretty prominent faction of the group that was causing a disturbance in Washington, D.C. And this is even before the riots happened at the Capitol building last week. This is a group that was founded in Quebec, and now even Canada is mulling over whether to classify them as a terrorist organization. The bulk of the platforms that the Proud Boys have been using, especially in the Canadian branches of the organization, have actually disappeared since Monday. Uh, they uh, have had them all removed because they were all up on that social media platform of Parler. So they're definitely losing the ability to communicate the way they used to. So is this an opportunity perhaps for the government to do more to address the situation. While talking more about this now is Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Stephanie, thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Is this a chance, do you think, for the Canadian government to address this problem? Well, you know, there's there's a number of different arguments for this, and certainly we have seen uh, increased calls for the government to do more to counter white supremacy and far-right extremism in Canada, particularly in the wake of a mosque care uh, worker being killed this past summer by an individual who belonged to a group. It was Basically, it's a satanic neo-Nazi group um, called the Order of Nine Angels. And since then, we've seen increased calls for this kind of dismantling of, of white supremacy in Canada. And I think the government is definitely looking at um, basically uh, listing uh, not just the Proud Boys, but in fact, a number of organizations in order to try and, and uh, start, you know, not only uh, signaling that they're going to take these organizations seriously, but also when you list an organization, you're able to really kind of take on and tackle its finances in a way that uh, you couldn't before. So there's definitely that incentive uh, right. for going forward. Do you, I feel sometimes like, do you think Canada is, we're a little bit complacent about these kinds of issues? I feel sometimes that we, we look down south and go, oh, wow, look what's happening down there. But we don't look enough at what's going on right here. Yeah, I think that's probably correct. In in some ways, we kind of look and shake our heads. Um, but I think also it's, you know, the far-right extremism manifests differently in Canada uh, than in the United States. I mean, in the United States, I think a lot of the issues really do center on Donald Trump. He is the node that connects conspiracy theorists to, you know, neo-Nazis, to um, all kinds of anti-immigrant people. Like, I mean, he really is that kind of centralizing node, and he's able to mobilize these forces in ways that Canadian politicians really haven't. I mean, we've had, I live in Ottawa, I, I've seen some protests on Parliament Hill, but they're, they're, they're small. So we don't have that kind of rallying force. That being said, um, we, you know, most of our terrorist attacks in the past two to three years have come from individuals who come from that 
uh, far right uh, or anti-government or misogynist kind of ecosystem of ideologically driven beliefs. And, uh, you know, you think of Alec Manassian in Toronto, you mm-hmm. think of the Quebec mosque shooting, um, this attack that happened last summer at the mosque. So, yeah, no, it's growing. And, and you know, sometimes that's called stochastic terrorism because it kind of happens randomly, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's any less scary or can have any less damaging effect on our society. So what kind of effect would it have then if the government did list the Proud Boys, the Canadian part of it, as a terrorist organization? So if they list the Proud Boys, it would have, again, I I, I mentioned earlier, the the most profound effect would be financial, I think, in the sense that, you know, any, it would stop them from getting donations. Um, you could you couldn't send the money uh, if if you supported their causes. It, it, in addition, you would be able to seize their assets. Um, so you know you're not allowed to actually own things if you're a yeah. terrorism entity. So that there's that. Operationally, I don't think it makes that much of a difference in the sense that you don't actually have to be a member of a listed tent. Ter- um, you know, just because uh, you're furthering the end of a terrorist group and that group isn't listed it doesn't mean you can't be prosecuted, right? So operationally, I mean, I know, you know, I think it's, it's well known now that our national security agencies have been spending more time looking at these individuals. So, um, so I think really the effect is, is twofold. The first is it would impact their operations just simply financially. Right. I mean, if you're uh, a leader in one of these groups, good luck opening a bank account in the future. Not a fun thing to do. Uh, and then the second thing I think is it's political. It does send a sign to other groups that, you know what, it's not just, um, you know, groups like ISIS that, that are constituting uh, terrorist threats to Canada. It's, it's very much also uh, these far-right extremists these that are, are, you know, engaged in these activities, and we need to counter it. Uh, do you think these far-right groups are finally now getting the attention? A lot of people had complained that in recent years, you know, we weren't paying enough attention to this. Do you think that's changed now? I do, uh, in, in a very, very big way. Um, and, you know, it was at the point really where in, in, you know, 2015 that even CSIS had actually shut down its far right desk. It had it decided that it was going to dedicate all of its attention to the threat of foreign fighters and the threat um, inspired by the Islamic State. And that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> so it had to kind of reopen. Um, so just on an institutional level, it, it's starting to. But, you know, it's interesting. And one of the things that does puzzle me is, you know, after 9-11, we saw the national security apparatus in Canada kind of change on a dime, yes. right? And and start focusing on the kind of Al-Qaeda-inspired threats. And we've had a number of very serious incidents in Canada, but we haven't seen that kind of spin. It's kind of been this slow, gradual realization. But I think, you know, every time one of these events happen, whether it's Charlottesville, whether it's a Quebec mosque shooting, whether it's um, Christchurch, uh, where, the you know, again, a mosque was, was, was unfortunately attacked, and two mosques actually, or, or events like Capitol Hill, all of these keep reinforcing this need that, you know, we need to be doing something. And whether it's, um, you know, but I think there's a debate here in terms of like, are we, you know, do we actually need to expand the national security apparatus more? Or should we also be working with these kind of affected communities to make sure they're more resilient, to make sure that they're stronger in order to, you know, counter some of these threats, too. I don't think all the response has to be law or just listing. Mm -hmm. I think we need to also start examining other kinds of approaches to violent extremism in Canada that looks that is more grounded in kind of um, helping to make communities stronger and more resilient to these kinds of threats. That's good advice. All right, Stephanie, thank you. Thank you for having me on. That's Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, talking about the difference it would make if the Canadian government did classify the group Proud Boys as a terrorist organization, which is under consideration. For now, it looks like most of their social media pages have been taken down, whether it's Parler or whatever the case, uh, and that is putting that group in a very difficult position, which is pretty much exactly where the government wants them right now, and a lot of other people too. So, We will continue to talk about that story. So we know Quebec is now under a curfew, right, from 8 o'clock at night till 5 o'clock in the morning. And there were a lot of questions about whether or not Ontario was going to go the same route, because now Ontario is the hotspot in the country when it comes to COVID-19 cases. Well, they've ruled out the curfew, but... That leaves the question, what are they going to do with their escalating number of cases? Well, we are expecting to hear more about that today, about what steps the government is going to take. Joining us now for more on this is Global News Toronto reporter Marianne Demand. Marianne, thank you so much for being here. Hi, good morning. So what are you hearing? What is going to happen? 
Yeah, that's really the big question because the favorite sentence that our premier here in Ontario, Premier Doug Ford, has uh, repeated throughout this pandemic is that, quote, everything is on the table. And the question has always been, well, what is on the table? And so, as you mentioned, the curfew was something we heard about as a possibility. But yesterday, they officially said that that is not the case. So what we're hearing now is that it could be a state of emergency. And so if we see that declared here in Ontario, it would mean that the province would have more power to make uh, more restrictions, put more restrictions in place, I should say. And that could come in the form of, you know, even shorter uh, business hours for retailers that remain open during the lockdown here in the province. That could impact manufacturing and um, construction as well with only essential projects going forward. And we could also see a tighter number of people allowed to gather outside. Currently it's 10, but that could be reduced to five. But again, all of the details won't be released until later this afternoon. So at this point, it's just waiting to find Mm -hmm. out how tight these restrictions will be. Now, Marion, I have to say I'm surprised when I just heard you say you're still allowed to gather in groups of 10 with your case numbers escalating. 10 people? Really? Yeah, 10 people outdoors. Surprisingly, that is still allowed. So you are allowed to have people outside in your backyard or your front yard, for instance, socially distanced. Uh, But as far as gathering inside, you cannot join with any other household. You can only socialize with the people you live with and no one else. So we could see that number drop to five. It is interesting, though, as you mentioned, you're shocked to hear that we could still gather outside because even with those restrictions, we had a couple of snowy days in Um, over the holiday season and all you had to do was drive past any one of the tobogganing hills and it was packed with people and there were a lot of questions even then why isn't this being regulated why are there not restrictions here because while you can't gather a lot of people in your own backyard there are so many people packed together here so that might be one of the restrictions Mm -hmm. we're hearing about as well because there seems to be a lot of holes a lot of questions even with the current restrictions in place. Right so one of the problems that we knew we had here in BC that brought in more restrictions was people gathering private gatherings in homes. What are the reasons why the numbers have escalated in Ontario? Well that is definitely one of the key reasons. In fact uh, provincial officials are even saying that Ontarians, many of them anyway, are admitting that they are not following the rules. And as we knew, no, uh, Christmas was just a few weeks ago. And so we're seeing the case counts reflected in the behaviors of um, people over the holiday season. We also know that the province didn't officially go into lockdown until Boxing Day. And so that really gave people the chance to try to um, gather last minute, even though we were told not to. But still, knowing that we weren't in a lockdown officially until after Christmas, people still gathered um, with multiple right. people outside of their household. So they figured one for the road, right? They figured, well, right, exactly. Yeah. One last hurrah. And unfortunately, we're seeing that reflected in the record case counts we have here in the province. What is the situation like in hospitals and ICUs? Well, that's the thing. So many hospitals here in Toronto and the neighboring uh, cities are being pushed to the brink. Uh, they're already at the breaking points. ICUs are running out of space. Um, We're also hearing about hospitals having to transfer other patients to other hospitals that can accommodate. We recently saw the opening of a COVID response hospital unit that was actually built during the first wave in the spring, but wasn't needed until now. So that's only for people who are already stable, who only have mild to moderate symptoms to continue the recovery there to kind of free up beds and other areas of the hospitals. But when it comes to ICUs, the alarm bells have been sounding for a long time, even more so now. Global News has learned that the projections that are expected to be released at Queen's Park today will indicate that we could see 100 daily deaths by the end of February if no new restrictions are put in place. So that is uh, pretty alarming, pretty grim. And so whatever restrictions are going to be announced today, the hope is that that will at least bring that projected number down. Yeah, I hope so too. All right, Marianne, thank you. You're welcome. Marianne Demand, that's a Global News reporter in Toronto. They are expecting more restrictions to be put in place in Ontario. Not a curfew, uh, but some more restrictions put in place. What they look like, they don't exactly know yet. But in Ontario, they sure have been giving lots of notice uh, for when they do put restrictions in place. And I know some here in BC would go, well, that would be nice if we got that. Except look what happened. They gave notice in Ontario days in advance of a lockdown and people decided to get together for one last hurrah. And now their numbers are sky rocketing in that province. You know, we all need something to look forward to. I think it's a reason why so many people travel or plan trips or something, go out for dinner, something. It gives us something to look forward to. And a lot of people would love to look forward to something like a tropical vacation. Such a thing is not possible right now. 
Or is it if you use your imagination? Well, the Fairmont Hotel Vancouver would like to,、uh, I should say, the Fairmont Vancouver Hotel at the airport would like to help you out with that. And they、uh, are giving you some ideas to do that with a vacation experience that doesn't actually require you to leave Vancouver. Leslie Ann Kuhn joins us now, the Director of Sales and Marketing at the Fairmont Vancouver Airport. Leslie Ann, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. This is a kind of a neat idea. How did it come about? I think our staff are really trying to you know, make some experiences happen during this challenging time. And、um, we sat down and talked about what kind of opportunities we could offer that would be somewhat authentic to our brand. And reached out to our sister property, which、uh, in Mexico, the Fairmont Mayacoba, and thought we could create somewhat of an experience、uh, based at our hotel using some of their authentic menu items. Uh, amenities and signature cocktails to create an experience that they could have with not going to Mexico. Okay, so how is this going to work? So basically, we partnered with the chef, so we've created an authentic menu、um, with the chef in Mexico and our chef here at the hotel、um, to create menu items that come from the property, along with some of the unique experiences. We've given pool time of two hours poolside with some signature cocktails and snacks. Um, we've also got some signature amenities that were flew in from Mexico to add to the, the small touches that the Fairmont Mayacoba offers at their property and incorporated into the stay for our guests at our property.、Um, so, yeah, and then we've also got some fun things included as a spa credit, which you can go in for some massages, which you do on vacation, or for those people that want to leave with somewhat of a color. They have spray tans available, so you can feel like you actually were away for a vacation of somewhat. So, so, this is going to make you feel like you went somewhere even though you never actually left the hotel? Absolutely. And you actually drove up to the airport to, to attend the event and the occupancy and the stay at the hotel. So, it gives you that experience of going somewhere、um, within the hotel itself. This is a neat idea because, as I was saying earlier, I think people just need you know, a little something to look forward to. What kind of reaction have you gotten to it? Well, we just sent out the media release yesterday. So we've had lots of great feedback from our partners. And、um, obviously, the Fairmont Mayacoba is really happy to be a, you know, partnering as a, a brand, too, and, and sharing out the,、um, the menu items. And with our chefs working together, it's really brought us closer together as a brand. I know this is really challenging times, Leslie Ann, for the hotel industry. Is this something that you can foresee maybe doing a little bit more of? I think so. I think it's, it's, it adds some fun for you know, all of us that just want to do something different and, and can't, unfortunately, at this time. And we can create some unique experiences and hopefully our guests leave with some memories as well, like they would at any other vacation. Right, one would hope.、Uh, so, do you foresee a time? Is the hotel, I know the airport one is open, and I know not every hotel is open right now, but、uh, 2021, looking ahead to that, do you see things potentially getting better for the industry? I am very optimistic. So, yes, I do、uh, foresee. I think the positive is we've got vaccines happening and、um, you know, rapid testing happening. So, all this stuff helps us get people back traveling again because there's certainly a lot of, a lot of people that really want to travel, and,、um, including myself. So, yeah, definitely、uh, hoping. And you know, I'm very optimistic that I think by you know, summer we'll have some, some positive results wow, heading we all, our way. We all <laughs> hope so. So, l e s l i e a n where can people find out more information about this? They can go to our website at fairmont.com and under Vancouver Airport, and the information is on the, the website. And if they have any other questions, they can feel free to reach out to the hotel direct. All right, sounds like fun. Lizanne, thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That's Lizanne Kuhn, who's the director of sales and marketing at the Fairmont Vancouver Airport. They are marketing something called a vacation. To nowhere. They're hoping it makes you feel like that you were, you know, perhaps in close to Mexico's、uh, stunning Riviera Maya without ever actually going there. So they're kind of trading off with their resort down in that region where, let's see, for a night you get, you know, private pool time, cocktails and snacks. They've got a personalized menu from the region.、Oh, they've got, you know, special drinks, you name it. They're, they're trying to make you feel like you went somewhere even though you're not actually going anywhere. I have to, I'm not going to lie, I haven't gone anywhere in so long. I looked at that and thought, you know, that might actually be fun to do. It actually was appealing to me. Would you go for something like that? Do you think, are you needing something to look forward to? You could email me, simi at cknw.com. 
I think it's safe to say we're not setting a lot of great world records right now. I mean, the entire world is just holding its breath, waiting for the end of this pandemic. But we do have some things to commemorate, to mark. For instance, a man from North Vancouver was awarded a world record over the Christmas break. So what is it that he did? Let's find out. Jasek Laskowicz joins us now. He's a, officially a Guinness world record holder. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Nice to be well, with you guys. And congratulations, too. Tell me, Jessica, how did you do this? How did you get the world record? Well, in, it was actually, um, uh, I applied to Guinness World Record uh, back in 2017, before I even attempted uh, 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 my cycle. And uh, there were some guidelines uh, set by Guinness, and, uh, and uh, which I had to follow while cycling between Gibraltar, Copenhagen, and back to Rome. So, uh, yeah, I had to, uh, my main objective was to visit as many capital cities in Europe as much as I could, and and basically uh, visited 24 capitals (laughs) and across 26 countries with 11,423 kilometers in my that's amazing and so you were smart you asked them ahead of time hey what do i have to do so what were the rules like what did you have to make sure that you did uh i had to keep um, a a log book i had to also keep my uh, receipts um wherever i could um uh, whatever i paid for anything or uh, i paid for accommodations food or you name it i also um what else um uh, I couldn't stay longer than 11 days in one dedicated right. spot. So, yeah, there, there was a number of um, uh, things which I had to learn while I was uh, cycling. Okay. And how long did this journey take you? Um, the actual uh, uh, cycling, when I started on March 28th in Gibraltar, I ended in October 6th in Rome. So you're looking at six months and a week. But the actual cycling uh, was probably 127 days, if I remember well. I took a few breaks here and there, and I explored the different sites uh, uh, all over Europe. It's amazing. You went to 24 capital cities. I'm just looking at the map that you did here. It was quite impressive. What were some of your favorite <laughs> memories? Like, were people good to you along the route? Oh, they were uh, they were just fantastic. I, it was unbelievable how many great people I met. I mean, a complete strangers, uh, and, uh, even more struggling with English than I am. And uh, <laughs> it was just, it was unbelievable. We used uh, tablets, iPads, uh, Google Translator to uh, talk to each other uh, at the kitchen table. And, and they gave me a shelter. They allowed me to pitch tents in their backyards. Uh, they fed me. We had uh, uh, drinks, uh, uh, local food. Uh, uh, it was just fantastic. Very open, and uh, and I never really felt unsafe. Uh, well, except few roads. Uh, but right. other than that, uh, I, I cannot really uh, uh, complain. Now, Jessica, what made you want to do this? How did you come up with the idea? I think uh, what had really happened was uh, back in uh, 2014, I went to Greece and, and I, I ran the so-called authentic marathon between uh, Marathon City and Athens. And I remember when I finished that, I was walking with my girlfriend uh, around Acropolis, just uh, sightseeing. Mm-hmm. And we ran uh, uh, to this uh, Argentinian couple who were actually on a motorbike traveling all over the world for the last 12 years. So at that point, they visited 105 countries. Wow. And they did over 300,000 kilometers on their Japanese bike. So that was my encouragement. And I always wanted to take a leave of absence uh, just for a year. And and I guess that was the best timing. Now, what next? This is pretty good. You got your name on a Guinness <laughs> World Record, right? What do well, you do let, after this? Well, let, let, uh, let's this madness uh, finish first, yeah, because I had to cancel my trip like many probably other people canceled. Uh, this past July, I was having, supposed to head to uh, Peru, but uh, that all had been uh, put on hold. And uh, it's very hard to say. Right now, I'm holding 
strong and I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, when we're going to be all allowed to move around again. You must be very restless, though, given somebody who likes to bike like this, right? I am a little bit restless, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Was there a favorite capital that you had? Oh, gosh. Uh, That's a very, uh, very hard question, actually. There were so many beautiful places, and not necessarily even the capitals. There were small villages, and and I think uh, everything is dictated also how... um, uh, how many people mm-hmm. I was quite surprised how pleasant it was in Switzerland how how much uh, welcoming uh, Swiss are um, uh, which uh, took me by surprise actually uh, yeah I cannot right. really pinpoint which would be the best well that is an amazing accomplishment and Jessica thank you so much for joining us this morning thank you very much Appreciate. And congratulations at Jacek Laskowicz. He is a Guinness World Record holder. He biked essentially across Europe and visited the most European capitals consecutively than anybody had ever done before. We've had the speculation tax for a couple of years now, and it was controversial from the start. But yesterday we heard from the Ministry of Finance that the speculation tax has succeeded, they say, in increasing long-term rental availability. And they say it put $88 million in revenue as well into the province's coffers. So joining us now to talk about how effective it really has been, whether it lived up to all the hype, is Tom Davidoff, uh, Director of the UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Tom, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, we've talked about the speculation tax many times before. What did you think about the Ministry of Finance's statements on this? My recollection is the number, uh, the amount of revenue is a bit lower than it has been in the past. Uh, that may be why they're suggesting that there's been a shift into rentals that units uh, that were paying the tax previously uh, now have the owner reporting a rental uh, rather than uh, empty status that requires them to pay the tax. Right. Okay. So, I mean, what about the idea that it did provide more long-term rentals into the market? Well, that would be the claim that you have people who said, hey, uh, you know, it's empty in the first year of the operation of the tax and now say, well, no, it's it's not empty. I'm renting it out. So if it's not fraud, that would be uh, returning a unit to rental uh, pool rather than being used as a second home. Right. So you're saying when it comes to the numbers, though, that maybe it hasn't been as successful, do you think, as it could have been? No, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, it isn't a ton of revenue, right? I mean, I don't think they ever reach the kind of revenue targets people anticipated. And that could be because one of three things, one, people are still getting away with fraud. Uh, Two, it could be uh, that there was never as big of a problem of empty homes as people thought. Or three, after the tax came in and before anybody had to pay the tax, a lot of people dropped their property and either rented it out or sold it. We'll never know because we didn't have a baseline on these units before the tax. Uh, the fact that not a lot of revenue is being raised means there aren't a lot of people who are saying, yep, I have a second home and I owe the tax. Right. Now, you said, you know, what about the possibility of people still getting away with fraud? What kind of fraud are we talking about here? I have no idea. I'm just sort of enumerating the possibilities. You know, uh, obviously, you could have a phony lease of some kind. And I honestly do not know how or the extent of auditing. I'm not sure that information is public at all. All these measures, Tom, that the government took to, you know, try to combat all the craziness that was going on in the real estate market, do you think overall they did anything? You know, there's no question the foreign buyer tax had an impact at the very top of the market, right? If you look at uh, around Greater Vancouver, uh, West Vancouver, the west side of Vancouver, single-family homes in those markets really took a hit after the foreign buyer tax. On the other hand, after the foreign buyer tax, and more entry-level stuff really did just fine and increased quite a bit in value. The speculation tax came in and slowed that. So I do think the speculation tax had an impact of slowing down uh, the condo market uh, in terms of price growth. With COVID, we've had super low interest rates uh, and a greater desire for space because you know people are stuck at home. And I think to a lot of people's surprise, the housing market's been very strong with COVID. But, you know, that's that's independent of the effect of the speculation tax, which, again, I do think had an impact on cooling uh, most sectors of the market when it came in.
Right. Except now here we are a couple of years later. I mean, a lot of people's assessment, which just came out, you know, last week went up. Mine did substantially. So you think, what the heck is going on? Yeah, again, I think that, you know, look, I mean, I think there are there are some people who think uh, the speculation tax is just a horror show. There are others, myself included, who said, look, Vancouver's not going to become uh, affordable all of a sudden. Uh, but this tax helps with affordability by returning units or creating revenue for the province. Uh, and then there were some who think, well, if you, if you get rid of the foreign buyers and the speculators, that's it. We have the affordability problem solved. I think that's clearly not the case. And uh, COVID is making clear that there is, when you have low enough interest rates and plenty of domestic demand, uh, you can still get uh, price right. growth. Do you think that is what's going on? It's domestic demand right now? That's certainly my impression from everything I've heard. Uh, you know, I don't I haven't heard of any explosion of foreign buying percentages because they do measure whether uh, the purchasers are foreign or not. And I don't think, you know, with, with a 15 percent or even higher foreign buyer tax, I think it's very unattractive for people to self-declare as foreign buyers here. Does that surprise you then? I mean, given, like you say, all the predictions that all oh, the market's going to collapse. So if we can't let foreign buyers buy this, it's going to be terrible. Uh, well, no, again, I mean, I think COVID has been really surprising in the fact that, you know, I certainly thought, well, if you have a prolonged slowdown of the economy, that's going to be bad for the housing market. I think, you know, what that missed was interest rates are just extremely low, which makes it more affordable to buy homes, even if the price goes up, uh, especially for first time borrowers who buyers who use so much mortgage debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, and again, you know, it's true that this has been a disease that has kept people home, but because you're stuck at home, people, you know, I'm sure we've all had the experience of uh, multiple people trying to Zoom uh, near each other uh, and just a, a need for greater space. And uh, I think that demand for space is really behind a lot of the uh, recent increase in prices because we're seeing it all over. It's not just Vancouver. Yeah. We're seeing it throughout the states and Canada. And do you, what do you see for the market then in the next year or so? Like, even when this pandemic is over, can the market sustain that level of interest? Well, one thing I'll say is before COVID, uh, the spring, uh, the market was doing quite well uh, in, in early 2020. So, you know, I don't see a crash coming. I mean, if, if interest rates rose a lot, but, you know, you'd think the economy will be pretty strong if we can get everybody inoculated and back to work. So, you know, it's very, very difficult to forecast changes in asset prices, but I don't see, uh, other than a prolonged shutdown and, and incomes falling, that, you know, that would probably be the worst case. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if people just lose a lot more wealth due to COVID, that's probably the greatest short-term risk, uh, but, but things look pretty good for, for now. All right, Tom, thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you. Tom Davidoff, Director of the UBC Centre for Urban Economics and Real Estate, talking about the numbers that Ministry of Finance put out yesterday in regards to the speculation tax. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about it over the years, but what the province said yesterday is they believe that program has succeeded in increasing long-term rental availability and it said it's made about $88 million in revenue as well. I just spent most of that last commercial break looking at pictures of marmots online because they are adorable. They're like a cross between a squirrel and a beaver. And they're also an endangered species right here in Canada. Now, we know there's been a lot of bad news this year. But turns out researchers are actually seeing something remarkable when it comes to these cute little guys. So joining us now is Adam Taylor. He's the executive director of the Marmot Recovery Foundation. Adam, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Well, we love good news. So tell me, what's been going on with marmots? Well, the population obviously is still quite endangered, but this past couple of years have been relatively good years for the marmot. So last year we had a record number of pups born in the wild, which was really thrilling. And we had expected this year would be a little bit quieter, but in the end we had another really substantial boom of pups being born in the wild. So mm. it's really wonderful to see all of these uh, young marmots being born and that the colonies marmots live in these uh, subalpine ecosystems that are covered by snow for seven months of the year and 
they have to go into hibernation for such a long time and it takes such a big toll on their bodies that they don't have pups on a regular basis. So seeing all of these young marmots is exciting because it also means that there's lots of good vegetation for the marmots to feed off of, that they're really thriving in these quite harsh ecosystems. Okay, so when you talk about numbers, the number of pups that have been born, like how much of an impact has that had on the population? Well, just to give you an idea, we think there's about 200 marmots in the wild right now. These are Vancouver Island marmots, to be clear. Uh, And last year, in 2020, we saw 63 pups born in the wild. So that's a pretty substantial number for the number of marmots that are out there. And do we think, is this something that has been done? I know they're an endangered species, which means they get more attention. Has that had an impact? Oh, absolutely. So if we go back to 2003, this species was reduced to fewer than 30 marmots left in the wild. So it it is still one of the most endangered species on the planet. And we are engaged in recovery efforts to try and recover the wild population. So we do that through captive breeding. So we we breed marmots in captivity at the Toronto and Calgary zoos and at a special facility on Mount Washington. And we release those marmots to the wild. And in addition to that, we do um, some feeding for the wild marmots and habitat restoration. And through that process, we've been able to both increase numbers in the wild, but also been able to reintroduce the marmots to a large number of sites where they had been completely lost. So if you think about Strathcona Provincial Park, it's the Mm -hmm. largest provincial park on Vancouver Island, the oldest in BC, uh, and it once was really core habitat to the Vancouver Island marmot. But by the year 2000, marmots have been completely extirpated, completely disappeared from that park. So we've been able to reintroduce marmots there, and we're beginning to see those colonies naturally expand and establish new subcolonies, which is something we've been working toward for, well, 15 years now. Now, what happened to contribute to the lower numbers? Like, why did they become so endangered? It's an interesting story with the marmots. If you think about their habitat, they live in these tree-free meadows uh, and the subalpine and alpine ecosystems. And their core habitat has always been in relatively good shape. But the thing is that they're, it's very small. So they're almost like little tiny islands rising above a sea of trees. And the marmots that are in those meadows really rely on other meadows nearby to exchange marmots back and forth. In any small colony, there's always going to be something at some point that happens, whether it's a a cougar comes in and eats a bunch of the marmots, or there's a really severe avalanche that crushes a bunch of the hibernacula that the marmots rely on. Something over time is going to go wrong, and they rely on receiving marmots from other colonies to rebuild that population. And what we did was really disrupt the way that the marmots interact with each other, those colonies that exchange marmots. So certainly we know that by building roads, for instance, we allowed predators to get easier access to marmot colonies. Uh, High elevation logging contributed to both um, predators coming closer and spending more time in marmot colonies, but it also created this strange artificial habitat where marmots decided to start colonizing those cut blocks instead of actually going to another natural colony. And when they did that, two things happened. One, the cut blocks began to regrow with trees, and marmots rely on being able to see predators to be able to escape them. So as soon as the trees began to regrow, the marmots quickly got eaten. And two, every time a marmot went to one of those areas, one of those artificial places, uh, they weren't going to another natural colony. And so that support mechanism for all of those colonies broke down. And and ultimately, that contributed to uh, rapid and pretty severe decline in the population. Wow. Okay. So did that, that must have been over a period of quite some time. It was, we think. But honestly, there weren't a lot of people paying attention. And that was a big part right. of the problem. So they live in extremely inaccessible locations. Uh, most of the year, you can't access it at all, or there's severe avalanche hazard. Uh, so there's only a few months where it's open. And even then, these are pretty um, hard hikes to get into. So there weren't a lot of people paying attention to the marmots. And it wasn't until really the late 1990s that uh, naturalist groups and hiker groups Uh, who had been sounding the alarm for some years, finally were able to get enough attention to say 
there was something seriously right. wrong with the population. And at that point, uh, recovery efforts really started. But obviously, that was pretty late in the game. You know, by that time, the yeah. population had declined dramatically, had been lost from uh, huge swaths of their historic habitat. It's you know, in an ideal world, we'd begin recovery efforts for species before they reach that extreme low point. Yes, but sounds like there has been good news, though. Adam, thank you. Thank you very much, Simi. Adam Taylor, Executive Director with the Marmot Recovery Foundation. So many people have worked so hard to help save the endangered marmot, and it sounds like they're having some success. The last year or two, they are seeing many more marmot pups being born uh, in the wild, too. So that is something to celebrate. That We have reached an agreement with Pfizer to buy an additional 20 million doses of their COVID-19 vaccine. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the steps of Rideau Cottage just moments ago where he is having a media availability. So that announcement is among several he made as he also addressed the cabinet shuffle that he did this morning. Let's talk about all the news now. And joining us is Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So tell me what precipitated this cabinet shuffle? So Navdeep Baines, who is a really prominent figure in the Liberal Party and in this government, uh, he was the minister in charge of industry, science and innovation, has decided to leave politics. Um, he has two young daughters and he says that the reason why he's leaving is he realized if he ran again, uh, one of his daughters would be gone to university before he was finished. And that's sort of a key time he didn't want to miss that he feels that his daughters need him right now. Uh, he's been around for a long, long time. He has been a loyal soldier for the Trudeau government. So it's interesting that this really divided people within the Liberal Party. I heard from some uh, who told me we, we were the ones who broke. He was leaving politics last night and I was getting calls from people telling me I was wrong. Uh, some mm. of them had worked from him at very senior levels. They said this is not possible. Nav loved politics. He would never leave politics. Uh, I was very sure he was leaving based on my sourcing. And um, from the people who knew he was leaving, what I heard was that uh, he'd sort of just increasingly been considering this over the last six months or a year, that he'd started talking about maybe not running again, um, that maybe he's looking at the pandemic and priorities. It's an opportunity I'm hearing for him to go into the private sector uh, to get a, a good job there. I don't get the sense he's necessarily done with politics forever. Uh, I've been told by some that he may even have leadership ambitions, but that he's looking at this point uh, to step back and to take a break. Right. Okay. So then that precipitated this change today. But why remove Francois-Philippe Champagne from foreign affairs? Yeah, that's a big move. So yeah. it's interesting because the government spin on this, uh, when they call journalists, uh, and what I, they were trying to spin us with last night was it's a small cabinet shuffle. Well, it might be small in terms of numbers, but you're moving some of the biggest portfolios in cabinet right after you shuffled the finance minister, including foreign affairs. Uh, this is while everything is going on in the United States. Uh, this is while we are dealing with China on Meng Wanzhou and trying to bring the two Michaels home. It's in the middle of a global pandemic. And again, that is another file that interacts extensively in a pandemic. Um, and so there's some who are saying, you know, this is basically a demotion. And it is a less high profile file he's moving to. Absolutely. He's he's replacing Baines. Um, I know he loved the foreign affairs file and he was very happy there. And he has actually said that to me on a number of occasions that he loved the job. He does also have a background with the World Economic Forum and is a business guy. So it doesn't necessarily surprise me he's moving into a business innovation role. I know some folks in the innovation uh, sector, in the science sector, had not been thrilled with Navdeep Baines in that file. They liked him as a guy. They didn't necessarily feel that the policies were happening, mm -hmm. that he was as strong a minister. Champagne may change that, but there's no question that when you move from foreign affairs um, to industry, science, innovation, uh, it's, it's yeah. not a step up. Right. Okay. So what does that mean for Mark Garneau? Because he was a transportation minister and boy, there were a lot of tough issues over the last year in that, in that area. 
Yeah, Mark Garneau, I mean, transport's a huge file that most people don't think about, but we've seen how important it is in this pandemic. Um, it's a promotion for him up to uh, foreign affairs. You know, he interacted lots with the international community when he was an astronaut. Um, he's a very smart guy, and he managed to handle the transport file sort of like Teflon. There was times where you'd think mm-hmm. it's amazing these issues aren't sticking. For example, when we talk about travelers coming into Canada or people not quarantining, uh, a lot of these came down to transport or things the airlines were doing. Where's the airline bailout package? Why are airlines selling middle seats on either end of that issue? And somehow it never connected back to Mark Garneau. Part of that is because I can tell you his press office just doesn't really answer questions we put to him. They go dark. Uh, they refuse to say anything. But that's a strategy. Uh, right. But he's he has managed to f- handle that file uh, in a way that it hasn't really stuck to the government and it certainly hasn't stuck to him. And some politicians just seem to have that ability. So uh, definitely a move up from Mark Garneau. Okay. Does that, do you think, shift, does that change anything in how the government is going to approach some foreign affairs issue, like you were mentioning some of the more contentious ones, does putting somebody new in there signal anything? You know, I wouldn't expect any drastic changes. I know uh, when it comes to the U.S. file, I've talked to the most senior people in government who work on this, and they will say that until Donald Trump um, has is out and, and uh, you know, Joe Biden is sworn in, they're basically just trying to keep their heads down and not have to engage on anything major. Don't draw attention. Don't make it difficult. You never know what Donald Trump is going to do. And while they're convinced they have a good relationship on a working side with the administration, the reality is you just literally never know what he might do. So that won't change immediately. I think with the U.S. having Joe Biden as president, if you've seen the pictures of he and Trudeau together, that's not going to yeah. be a tough relationship for Trudeau, except when it comes to Keystone XL. That will be very tough. Um, when it comes to China, the government has been hardening their policy. And it'll be interesting to see if Garno does that. And they denied it and denied it and denied it to us when we asked them. It looks like right. you're hardening policy on China. And then all of a sudden, one day came out and said, yes, well, as you know, Francois-Philippe Champagne said it to me in the year-end interview we had on the West Block. Well, we, as you know, we've hardened our China policy. It's the first time they'd actually admitted <laughs> right. that was happening after claiming that wasn't it. So I'll be very interested to see on that. But of course, the big thing we're waiting there, uh, they're more hopeful than I've ever seen them that something might happen with the two Michaels coming home. Mm. And that goes to the possibility that we've seen reported by the Wall Street Journal uh, that perhaps the U.S. Justice Department is negotiating with Meng Wanzhou's lawyers to have her take a plea bargain, basically, and go back to China. That might be the trigger that would release the two Michaels. Does any of this, do you think, Mercedes, shadow a potentially uh, an election coming up soon? I, I do think it shows their election planning. Um, again, government is denying this. They're saying that's not the case. But I'm hearing from a lot of senior liberals that's exactly what it is. Um, and it makes sense. If you think you're going to go into an election, you don't want people in cabinet who aren't going to run again. Now, that said, that doesn't mean they've gotten everyone who's not going to run again or there won't be another shuffle. Uh, I think Baines wanted enough time to get out and given how significant his role is, right? When you're the Toronto Mm -hmm. political lieutenant for the Liberal Party, and that's a huge part of your base, that's a really important job other than your job as a minister and an MP. That's your strategic job in the party. They have to develop someone else who can do that before the election. Now, I keep being told by senior members of the government, including folks in the prime minister's office, they're not looking to pull the trigger, but they also won't swear off doing it. And there's a lot of people who think that they are eyeing potentially going right after the budget is introduced in the spring, that there will be such major things in there that they will say we need a mandate from Canadians or it will force the opposition to take them down. That said, my political gut instinct is it'll depend on how the vaccines are going. If that's going well, it's a great time for an election for them. If that's not, don't risk it. All right, Mercedes, thank you as always. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, with all the scuttlebutt of what is happening in Ottawa today. A couple other things that came out of the Prime Minister just speaking. The Canada-U.S. land border closure has been extended to February the 21st. No surprise there. I think everybody thought that was going to happen. And also, the government, federal government has announced that they have signed a deal with Pfizer to secure another 20 million doses of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. And that should be uh, more than enough to look after Canadians through the first, what, uh, two, three quarters of this year. So more to come on that as well. Right now...